The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I remind you that you can go to jasonderoshi.com, type in Isaiah, and find this is our 40th 40th week in Isaiah. And so all the studies, all the audio, all the PowerPoints, along with um, notes on everything that I've done, it's all online. If you, It's just there for, for you to benefit from if it'll serve you or others. Let's pray. Dear God, we are grateful that you have brought us together once again. How much we desire to learn from your word, overcome resistance and distraction, give us clarity and hope and celebration in what Christ has done on our behalf. We stand in awe that in love he came, in love he died, in love he rose, and now we are his. He has claimed us as his reward And we are amazed, amazed in the worth that he would put in clay pots. Magnify your greatness today through Jesus. Amen. This is the outline that I put together wrestling with the text. And we've been walking through through this text. You see the frame in, in dark black. That's where Yahweh's talking, God himself in his own words. And then in the middle, in verses 1 through 10 in Isaiah 53, the prophet is describing the servant's substitutionary suffering. So we're in the final part of that unit, verse 10, going to focus on the divine perspective on on Jesus' suffering, how God was viewing it, what God was intending in this work. And then we're going to move on to the last two verses. So read along with me. I'm going to begin in verse 8, where this unit starts. The human perspective in verses 8 and 9, and then God's perspective in verse 10. And I'll read through verse 12. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, this servant Savior was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 10. God's perspective on the suffering of this servant, it was God's will to crush him. Brother Bert Coppendreyer, when in our very first week on this text, he, he pointed here and he, he said, one thing I'm bringing into this study of Isaiah 53 is this verse and remembering how, how it struck me the first time I read Pastor John Piper's book, The, pa- um, what is it? the, Passion of, what, the Passions of God, uh, The Pleasures of God. The first time that, that Bert had read The Pleasures of God and he saw this word, that Pastor John used in in the title, focused on the gospel, it it pleased God. It was the will, the desire of God to crush His Son. 
That's what we're looking at here. Something in the Godhead that that said, it is part of my purpose, part of my good plan to crush my son. And, And that should just arrest us. Give pause to try to to grasp that the cross is intended by God for good. That it aligns with his, His purpose, that it wasn't catching Him off guard. Indeed, no purpose of God, ultimately, especially in the cross, cannot be thwarted. So let us consider this. Yahweh's desire for His servants' suffering. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The will of the Lord. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man, namely Judas, by whom he is betrayed. It was determined by God. The cross, Jesus came with purpose in order to die. It was part of his mission, why he left the throne of heaven and came to earth. For truly in this city, Paul or Peter says, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod was there. Pontius Pilate was there. The Gentiles, the people of Israel, what was it? They were doing. Every nail, before that, every blow of the whip, doing what your hand, O oh God, and your plan predestined to take place. That is massive view of sovereignty over the gravest evil that has ever been done on this planet. The crucifixion of the God-man. Working what God's purpose, what God's plan had predestined to occur. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. Next verse, the purpose for the suffering. Not the next verse, the next part of the verse. The ESV has, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, then something will happen. He'll see his offspring, etc., But I I saw something, somehow I I even missed it in my translation. When I'm working through a text, it's so easy to have the English that's more familiar dominating, and I can just look over and fail to parse words. Um, And I was struck in verse 10 at that point. It actually, where the ESV says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that it actually has, if you, if you, You offer as a guilt offering his soul. And scholars have tried to wrestle because it seems a little out of place, but I think what's happening, we're in verse 10, it's still the prophet talking, and all of a sudden the prophet, rather than talking to the masses, just turns his voice to God himself and says, God, looking ahead in light of all that's been promised about the, the coming servant's substitution, taking on the sins of the people, dying for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He's declared that it would happen, and then he says, Oh God, if you, after he's just said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Then he says, If you, oh God, would offer your son, offer your son, his soul that is, if you offer as a guilt offering his soul, then certain things will come. So this guilt offering, it's it's a little challenging. This is the only place I can find in Scripture where Jesus is portrayed not as a Passover lamb or not as the Day of Atonement sin offering, but he's actually called the guilt offering. And that had a, a specific kind of role in the Old Testament. So, for example, here in Leviticus 6, notice the role that the guilt offering plays. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, and specifically that dot, dot, dot between verses 2 and 5 is 
specific types of offenses that are done against people. So it's a breach against the Lord, but what's unique about a guilt offering is these are offenses that we do against others made in God's image. Sin offerings can be done apart from any other people. They're addressing sins between me and God. I directly violated Him, but if I come against you as a person, it is still considered breaching faith against the Lord. Because you're His creation, His imprint is on your being, and how I treat His image is a direct reflection on how I treat Him. But what's distinctive about the guilt offering is that there's always recompense. So sometimes this is called the uh, reparation offering. Thank you. The reparation offering. That is, you've got to repair a breach that's been done against another person. And what it always means is that you've got to repay them the full amount plus 20%. A fifth addition. So if you took a... If you, if you stole an ox from your neighbor, you don't only repay him the ox, you've got to give him something in addition that would equal 20% more value beyond that. And then you bring the offering to the priest and you can make atonement before the Lord by, by recognizing your guilt, confessing your sin, and putting your trust in the provision of the substitute that the Lord has supplied. Jesus takes on the role of this guilt offering. He's the ultimate end because the blood of bulls and goats ultimately cannot reconcile man to God. It was merely a picture of a greater need. So here's what we read. If if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by harming, wounding another person then that person who sinned shall restore whatever he took, whatever he did, in whatever way he violated. He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. There's the 20%. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. And then he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. That's the the very word that we see in our passage. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and here's what happens. In that moment of declaring, this beast is now me. My sins are counted to this beast. This unblemished lamb is now me. All of his blamelessness, his symbolic righteousness is now counted as mine. In that moment, he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. And Isaiah portrays Jesus as the ultimate answer to this kind of dilemma. Here's the result. Look at that. It's beautiful, staggering. What would happen if he is but willing to offer himself, if you, O God, offer his soul as a guilt offering, then he shall see offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Three beautiful things. Now just ponder with me for a second. If you've got the suffering Savior put up on an altar, dying on behalf of people, and if he's willing to burn, if he's willing to sit underneath the wrath of God, then he shall see. He shall prolong, and the will of the Lord will prosper. What are the implications of of this result, of these goals? Resurrection. Very good. First implication, resurrection. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Um, If Christ, knowing he was born as this perfect sacrifice, why then did he ask, Lord, Father, if there's any way to let this pass, please make it so, but yet I will. Yet not my will, yours be done. Yeah, but he knew he was born. 
Right, so, so how could Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? God, if there's any other way, I think what we're hearing here is that he was 100% man. The desperation, I mean, most of us in this room probably don't fear death, but we do fear dying. Hebrews chapter 2 says, what Christ has done has taken away the fear of death, but the pain, the process, we're feeling the weight, I think, of what Jesus is facing, and yet, right in that same context, if there's no other way, and what this text tells us is that he would have recognized there was no other way, all the time leading up to that Garden of Gethsemane moment, he's been telling his disciples, this is where I'm going. This is what's going to happen. So and so I, I think we're feeling the weight of his humanness. So it's another perfect display of his God-manness. Yeah, a perfect display of his God-manness. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. These are New Testament texts saying it was talked about back then. And the third day part isn't in our text. I'd have to go elsewhere to, to show you where I think I find the third day part. But according to the scriptures, it said he would rise. And when we read, if you're willing to offer yourself as a guilt offering, then if you offer him, his soul as a guilt offering, then he shall see offspring. On the other side of his death, he'll see something. He'll prolong days. He's going to have a long life on the other side of death. This is about resurrection. Exactly. Now, I was trying to figure out how you got resurrection from offspring. Offspring is, we're going to talk about the offspring. That, that he shall see offspring is something about something, it's children that are going to be arising out of this episode. But the, the resurrection has to do with the sight that he shall see. Yet he just died. If, he's will, if you, O oh God, are willing to offer his soul as a guilt offering, then he's dead, and that's how we're supposed to read it. He's died, but if you offer him unto death, he will see. And so there's, he'll see, he'll prolong days, the will of the Lord will prosper, that there's more going on here than the death. But the death is somehow the means to... His, the very one who died, actually seeing something after he died. The very one who died prolonging days after he's been dead. The very one who died seeing the will of the God prosper through him in increasing measure. That's where I'm seeing resurrection. Jesus speaks of himself as the seed that must die in order to bear forth. In order to bear forth more fruit. That's good. Now, there's one more implication. Put yourself in the side of Jesus, knowing your scriptures through and through. And you come to this planet with Isaiah having been written about you. And you're approaching this Garden of Gethsemane moment. What is the implication of this verse for Christ? Amen. He knew there was something there. He knew this wasn't the end. And indeed, that's what motivated him. That there was motivation to endure because of promises for future grace. What he was hoping for tomorrow was changing who he was today. It helped him endure. And so the writer of Hebrews, right after it says this in verse 2, it says, So therefore, do not grow weary, church, in well-doing, but as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, you will find the grace to endure divine discipline. Now, I want to go in and unpack each of these. He shall see offspring prolong his days, and the will of the Lord prosper in his hand. He shall see offspring. Let's consider this. That if, if you, O oh God, will but put him on the altar, he's going to visualize offspring. It was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons 
to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting in order to generate sons who are not sons by some biological connection. The genealogical principle Generation after generation culminates in the person of Jesus, and he was not married to a physical bride. So if on the other side of his death, he's going to have offspring, they're going to have to be spiritual offspring by faith. Both Jew and Gentile alike needing to be adopted into this family. Offspring of God's servant Israel the person. So he will see, he the servant will see offspring. And I think even though in the, in the Hebrew, his is not in the text, the ESV says he'll see his offspring. It just says he'll see offspring. The question is, whose are they? Well, Isaiah already told us that they were the offspring of the servant who's dying here. Look at the text. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be made right with God and shall glory. Isaiah 45, 25. So the question on the table is, who's Israel? Here. Because the offspring of Israel will be justified, will, be, will glory in God. And just a few chapters later, definition is given. And I could go into more more unpacking and, and say, well, I really think this is true, but remember this text. So the question is, who are the, who's Israel? Who has offspring? And the offspring will be made right with God, will enjoy righteousness, will be justified. Here's the text. This is servant song number two. The servant, the suffering servant, Savior, is talking about God. Yahweh said to me, the Father said to the Son, You, my son, are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It's too light a thing that you, servant Israel, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel has a mission to save Israel. The offspring of Israel will be justified. In our text, he will see offspring. And then we'll see in verse 11, this very servant, who's God's righteous one, will account many righteous. He'll account them justified. Israel saves Israel. The offspring of God's servant, Israel, the person. That's not the only way offspring's talked about, though. He'll see offspring. Like whom? Like the real offspring of Abraham. Remember this text? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. All there, back there in Genesis. Through you, Abraham, all the world will be blessed. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. His enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The promises back there to Abe and to his offspring, it doesn't say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring. The offspring of Abraham is Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you become Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He will see offspring. He'll see his own offspring, who in turn become the offspring of Abraham. But not only the offspring of Abraham, they become the children of Jerusalem, the bride of God. Galatians 4, 26 and 27. Now have your Bibles open and look at Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3 as I read this text. We're just looking just three verses later. No chapter breaks in the original Bible. The Jerusalem that is above stands in contrast to the Jerusalem on earth. And Paul says, 
I'm not about identifying myself with the earthly Jerusalem. I'm about identifying myself with the place where the King of Kings now sits enthroned, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem that is above, she is our mother. That is, we are offspring of her. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one. This is Isaiah 54. Who does not bear? Break forth and cry aloud, you who wear who were not in labor. There it is again, typing. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, next fall, Lord willing, we're going to start right here. And I'm going to unpack how this fits. But what I want you to see is verse, verses, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 together now of chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Think Sarah, who's been barren for a long time, versus Hagar, who had a child right away. That's, the, that's how Paul reads the text in Galatians chapter 4. And he says, he, he reads it, he says, allegorically. So that the Jerusalem on earth was like Hagar. Not the chosen Jerusalem, but the one who stood against the ultimate Jerusalem. And yet... God's family, through Abraham, I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations. And it hasn't happened. In all the Old Testament age, years and years, centuries and centuries have gone by as if Sarah is barren and hasn't brought forth Isaac in the promised line. Whereas Hagar has Ishmael right away. And yet God says it's not through Hagar that the promise will come, just like it would not be through the Old Covenant that salvation would reach the earth. But now, the barren one has offspring. Yet without the pain of childbirth, we'll talk about that next fall, how can you have children without undergoing the curse yourself? Yet those children are identified with the one who was once barren. And then it says, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. You're going to need a bigger place to live because your children are going to be so many. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you, O Jerusalem, this once barren woman, the Jerusalem that is above, that is now our mother, you will spread abroad to the right, to the left, and your offspring, there it is, your offspring will possess the nations. And will people the desolate cities. Nations are part of the offspring that we're talking about here. And if he will die, he will see offspring. It's going to happen through some spiritual rebirth. Through his death, he will generate children of a heavenly Jerusalem. He shall prolong his days. After he dies, he's going to have a long reign. Look at how Deuteronomy talked about the king. When the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, and there would be many kings, but every king was an ultimate pointer to the true king of kings. And here's what it says. If this king will write a copy of, his, of the law approved by the Levitical priests and read it every day, in order that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and do them, this will be the result. His heart would not be lifted up above his brothers, that he would not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long. That's the exact phrase, prolong his days. That's the exact phrase in our text. So that he would continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, this is the ideal picture of kingship in Israel. A king who would be a man of the book, not replacing God, but representing God perfectly. Who's, who would live the word, and in the process, fear would be generated, and, and a proper fear of God would lead to holiness, massive holiness, wherein he would never turn to the right or turn to the left. And as he would be that kind of a king, it would generate a kingdom that would be prolonged days. No king in the Old Testament fit that bill. And none of their kingdoms lasted. But one king rose, an Israelite king, 
who fulfilled this vision perfectly and with the result, as God laid out in Deuteronomy 17, an eternal kingdom follows. Here's how God promised it to to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Either you'd have to have an enduring line of kings or one king whose reign would never end. Your throne shall be established forever. He asked of life of you. You gave it to him length of days forever and ever. That's the same phrase, prolonged days. And this text in Psalm 21 It alludes back to Psalm 16. The body shall not be corrupted. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Peter cites that text in Acts chapter 2 and says it was talking, David was talking about the Christ, the resurrection of the Christ, an incorrupted body. Prolonged days. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. That's the vision, prolonged days. If He would but offer Himself for the joy set before Him, what is that joy? It's a people, and it's an eternal reign, so that you and I can rest knowing that None of his purposes can be thwarted. He is on the throne right now. He obeyed to the point of death, death on the cross. Now God has highly exalted him and given him all authority in heaven and on earth. He has been given, highly exalted, and given a name that is above every name. He has been appointed the Son of God in power, says Romans 1.4. Appointed the Son of God in power through the resurrection of the dead. He came as heir to the throne with all of that power and authority. But something shifted at His resurrection. He moved from the heir to the actual king. And that king's reign will never end. And if you're the child of that king, then you know that you have the most powerful agent in the universe who is for you and not against you. That is our hope today. The will of the Lord would prosper through him. The will of the Lord, like what? What kind of will? He will not grow faint or be discouraged, the text told us in Isaiah 42, first of the servant songs, until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That was God's will for him. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was God's will for him, and the will of the Lord will prosper. But the Lord God helps me. Third servant song. First, second, third. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. The will of the Lord is prospering in my ministry, in my life, in my death, in my resurrection. He who vindicates me, that is, he who declares me right. Remember that, that's... Literally what it says, he who declares me right. And in our text, in verse 11, he's going to be called the righteous one. Straight from this text. He is the one who God has deemed you truly are right. I look at you, my son, and I say you are right in every way. You align with right order perfectly. You live in that strata of the universe wherein I am supreme You live for my glory to the uttermost, and so I can rightly look at you and call you righteous. Whereas when he looks at us, he declares us what we are not. For Jesus, he declared him what he was, righteous. We enjoy that declaration by faith alone. Jesus enjoyed it by right. He who declares me right is near. Who will contend with me? No one can come. Let him stand up. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Not one. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. I glorified you on earth, Jesus said in John 17, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. The will of the Lord would prosper. 
It's working. It's, it's being fulfilled even now in this age. Jesus definitively, in the past, decisively changed the scope of history. He entered into those who were in darkness and made a way for them to have light. To alter their course toward God rather than to be enemies of God. For all who would surrender and say, I need a Savior. I need help. He's there. And He is powerful enough and able enough to take you out of the deepest mire, out of the deepest pain, out of the deepest darkness, and bring you into an age, a period of hope that you've never tasted before. The Lord foresees His servant's global exaltation through substitutionary suffering. That's where we started. It was all about all of this substitutionary work of the Christ. His suffering is in order to see Him exalted over all things. Then we focused on the nature of that suffering. The prophet described the servant's substitutionary suffering. And now we move to the last stage where God's going to talk again. Yahweh promises to reward His servant's substitutionary suffering with the prize of a global people. Let's look at it. Isaiah 53, 11. The reason for his reward. Verse 12 is going to describe the reward, and I've already given a hint to it. It's the prize of a global people. Why does he get such a reward? Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. He shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the servant has a knowledge, he's aware of what's going on. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. The servant's suffering. Why does he get a reward? His, servant, his suffering leads to a known future satisfaction. So that recalls again this, this very important text. For the joy that was set before him, he endured. Notice, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see. He shall be satisfied. There's our joy word right in the text. And then, by his knowledge, that is, he's aware of all this. He's not going to the cross unaware. He is fully aware. And it's what's driving him that keeps him going. You're exactly right. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured, willingly took on shame, willingly did this for the sake of a greater mission. A loving mission. God so loved the world that he gave his son, and that son willingly gave himself. That's right. That's good. That's good. His knowledge, could, could that mean knowledge of him applying to those of us who will find out about this? Or is it just his knowledge is Jesus knew what was going on? I think it's the latter. Just the way the structure of the, the verse lines up to me, it suggests to me that when it says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, that it's, it's not referring to the knowledge of many, plural, 
as in the text, make many to be accounted righteous, it's referring to his knowledge is the knowledge of the very one who's undergoing the suffering. That it's the servant's knowledge. He's aware. He knows what he's doing. And out of the anguish of his soul, he sees and, is, and he's satisfied. It's his knowledge. It's the righteous one's knowledge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that I keep going. When it says, he shall be satisfied, satisfied in what? And I have here, he's satisfied in the great exchange with the many. So look up in verse 14 as of chapter 30, 52. As many were astonished at you, my servant's son, so, sorry, uh, as many as were astonished at you, O either God or Israel, so he shall sprinkle many. And when we were there, we saw that the sprinkling was an atoning, cleansing work of his sacrifice that we're going to read about. Many nations cleansed from all their sin, cleansed from all their filth, reconciled with God. Many, that's the goal. And now we read, the satisfaction is that many would be accounted righteous, Jew, Gentile alike, made right with God, gaining right standing where they once were enemies, no longer enemies. And I'm calling this the great exchange. Our guilt placed on the servant Savior, His right, right standing, His righteousness, His blamelessness counted as ours. Some of God's earlier promises in this book so far. He just says, Zion will be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is made manifest. Through the, the dying, through the exalting resurrection, the righteousness of God is manifest. By righteousness, those who repent will be redeemed. And I'm wanting to show us that that righteousness is a person. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be made right and shall glory. I bring near my righteousness. How near? So near that you could touch him. We have seen his glory. We have heard his words. That is the righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out with my arms and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, for my arm they wait. My righteousness draws near. Verse 11 says, the righteous one is the very one who accounts many righteous. God's righteousness gets embodied in a person. His definition of right order, where His glory is always at the top. You look at Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen every bit of His passion, every bit of His hunger, every bit of His, his delight in salvation. You've seen it in me. The righteousness that has drawn near is nothing other than the very arm of God who Isaiah 51 and 50, sorry, 53, Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, right in our text, that arm is a person. He's the very one who grew up in a humiliating state and now is seated on high. Jesus, our King. Fulfillment of some of these promises. Just notice the language and just see it in the text. He will make many to be accounted righteous. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. But the free gift is not like the trespass, Paul says. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
This is not a universalism. But there are many. Many. And I pray that all of us here in this room would be a part of that many. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's sin made all of us guilty, condemnable before God. But by the one man's obedience, that obedience of Jesus is counted toward us. We are among the many who are then made righteous. That's the great exchange. Our guilt placed on Jesus. That's the penal substitutionary atonement. That's what you use. That's a big word. Penal is penalty. Jesus bore the just penalty of God for sin. He did so as a substitute, not for his own actions, but for our actions. And the result is atonement. We are all of a sudden cleansed and made right with God. He looks at us through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And there's so many other texts we could look at. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Paul, two verses later, cites Isaiah 49.8 which is about Jesus becoming a covenant for the people and saving the world. So many other texts we could look at. But look at verse 12. We might just make it. Verse 12. So here's Jesus. He makes many to be accounted righteous. There's the what we call positive imputation. Positive reckoning. He, he counts many righteous who were not right. And he bears their iniquity. That's what we call negative imputation. It's the removal of our guilt put on Christ and the, 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 the uh, counting of His perfectness as ours. The great exchange. Now, therefore, therefore, because of this work, there is reward. Now, the ESV says, I will divide him a portion with the many. Well, the many are those who are saved. And it, it, it almost sounds as though the many who are accounted righteous, it, I mean, it could be that this servant Savior is now being accounted as one of our brothers and we're on an equal plane with him. But I, I wrestle with that. So I, I'm scratching my head and I all of a sudden saw the commentators are scratching their head because this is not a text about Jesus making other people like him. This text started in verse chapter uh, 52, 13, saying, I'm going to tell you how he is highly exalted over all other peoples, all other powers. This is a text to show how through tribulation he alone triumphs. And that part of his triumphal delight is that he surrounded a people with him who are now part of his family, but he's still always the king. So with that in mind, here's how I'm translating verses, verse, the beginning of verse 12. And you'll see it's a little bit different, but it's still word for word from the Hebrew. You've just got different words that you could translate in different ways. And I think this is what it's saying. Therefore, because he has given himself in this great exchange, I will give a share to him in the many. Many sinned. Many rebelled. And then many are saved. So of this many group, there is a subset of many. So this is the many who sinned. But within this, there are many who are saved. And God says, I will give him a share in the many. Of the big many, he gets a share that he claims as his own. And strong ones, he shall apportion as spoil. That is, a battle has been won, and he gets to claim the goods. And this is God's gift. And I'm seeing here just an echo, if 
you, O Lord, will but offer him as a guilt offering, then there's going to be a result. Goals are going to be accomplished. He shall see offspring, prolong his days, and the the will of the Lord will be flourishing in his hand. This is his reward. Yet verse 12 culminates all of this text and focuses not on his eternal reign, not on the will of the Lord prospering. It focuses on a people. It focuses on those of us in this room who have surrendered our hearts to Jesus, and it says, you are the ones he's claimed for his reward. And I just stand in awe of that. That we can be counted, as it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, as treasured possession. That's awesome. And I'm, am, I, I'm, am I worth that? No. But for the grace of God. And yet you were worth that. Worth Him entering into this world to claim as your own. To not only to provide a way, but to, to give satisfaction to the wrath of God. That He would claim you in light of the potential you have in your life to display His image. For the, for the glory of God and for the good of you, He has entered in to save. And He cherishes us. He takes pleasure. It's an amazing word. God takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. The very pleasure, same word, that, that sent Jesus to the cross, it was the pleasure of the Lord to crush Him. It's that same pleasure but of higher, more intense, more deep gut realities that He takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Be among those today and know that you're claimed as Christ's. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's such hope there. In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This word beloved, in Isaiah 44.2, it's really beautiful. Um, In the Hebrew, it just says jeshurun. It's like, what is jeshurun? I don't know. But the Septuagint translator rendered this Hebrew word that's difficult to figure out what it means as beloved. And it's referring to Jesus and His claim on a people. So if you were to go to Isaiah 44 and read Jacob and Israel as anticipating the person, Jacob and Israel, not the people, Jacob and Israel, but as the person, Jacob and Israel, who is the beloved of God, then it says in that text that the beloved of God will enjoy offspring and the offspring of the beloved will be blessed. And I think that's what's standing behind Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. It's this whole trajectory of Isaiah culminating through the Christ, and the people that he brings to himself, enjoying blessing in God's beloved Jesus himself. But now, here, oh, there it is, right there. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. I'm, I'm saying, I think that in the trajectory of Isaiah, we're supposed to get to Isaiah 49 and say, wait, I need to go back to Isaiah 44 because Israel is a person. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb. That's straight out of Isaiah 42. And will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, beloved Israel, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit upon Israel's offspring. And my blessing on your descendants. All those who are in the beloved are blessed. And then we just, at the very end here, get an echo of the basis again for why we are claimed as his reward. Because he poured out his soul to death. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He poured out his soul as a drink offering unto God. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'm willing to obey. Even death on a cross. 
And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And with that, what it does is it says Paul then has come full circle. In his mind, he's reading Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12 as a unit. And he speaks of becoming obedient to the point of death in verse 8. And then, which, which I'm saying is an echo here of he poured out his soul to death. And then before that, God has highly exalted him. And that's the exact language that we see in verse 13 of 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up and be exalted. There's the frame. Through tribulation unto triumph. And the triumph is displayed by gathering a people around him whom he has redeemed. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus in Luke 22, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors as if he were a sinner when he was not one. That is the reason he gets a reward. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, numbered with the transgressors. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Next phrase. He bore the sin of many. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many, the many are made righteous. And last phrase, he makes intercession for the transgressors. And this might be the most hopeful for us living in this age. Because... We still battle sin so much. Anxiety, fear, bitterness, lust, lack of control of our tongues. And believe me, what we need is an advocate in heaven who is working on our behalf. And what God says, what Paul declares here is, who is it to condemn? If you are bought, if you are cleansed, No one can condemn you. There's no condemnation whatsoever. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and therefore declared to be right, shown, vindicated before the Father that all of His living and dying was pleasing to the Lord and satisfied everything. Who is it to condemn? More than that, who was raised, who right now is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us before the Father. And God always listens to His righteous Son. Last text. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you would not sin. My children, I've been teaching you this year, I think it's the end of my 12th year in this class, so that you would not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate who is ever interceding on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So go to him. Turn to him. Plead with him. Don't fall away from the cross. Fall toward the cross. Celebrate that he is stronger than all power of evil, that he has disarmed all that is evil at the cross. It no longer holds legal sway over any of us if we, by faith, have given our lives to Him. And He is for us and not against us. And He, is, he didn't only die to bring us justification. He died in order to produce sanctification. All the power of heaven is here. Pray that He would work it in you. Pray that He would work it in the ones that you're struggling with. Look to Him in dependence. I teach these things so that you would not sin. But if you do, all of us have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, if we by faith have surrendered. Paul? And I pray not only for my disciples, but for all those who would believe in their words. That's what he's doing. Beautiful. John 17, the high priestly prayer just before the Garden of Gethsemane scene. 
lifting us up. Jesus had us in his mind. That is hopeful. Father, I thank you for your mercies this year in this classroom that's not over. We're still in need of more grace. We pray that you'd pour it out on Brother Bert and Trish as they teach. Pour it out on Brother Paul as he teaches. Pour it out on this uh, pastoral candidate for care and counseling as he teaches. And go, God, help us celebrate that we have a good intercessor, one who is right and through whom you look at us rightly, one who, for the joy set before him, endured and now is gathering a reward and we get to be among it, a treasured possession. We praise you for such mercy, praise you for such joy, such freedom. Oh, to know freedom from the burden of condemnation, the freedom from the burden of guilt, the freedom from the burden of of regret. You can take it all away. Be honored in this place. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.